we've been sold this idea that like capitalism is a solution to climate change instead of like actually flipping the script and being like oh but no capitalism is actually like the thing like driving literally all of this welcome back to i'm the villain so today we're going to be talking about black ecology, which is like such a juicy topic. I'm so excited to talk about this. Today we're going to be talking with Emilio Freeman. And Emilio, why don't you just go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, anything that you think the audience should know about you? Yeah, definitely. And first and foremost, thank you so much for the invitation to be in this space. I'm just super excited, super honored. Um, so holding all the gratitude for you both and just like the conversations that you guys curate. So. Again, I'm Amiria Freeman. I use he and they pronouns. Um, I always say that like, I'm a proud black queer Southerner. Specifically, I'm from Hampton, Virginia, also known as Kickatin Lands. Um, I currently reside in Washington, DC. And in my day to day, I am an advocacy manager for an anti-hunger org. Um, so yeah, a lot of my life is really dedicated to thinking through like food systems and food and land and agriculture. Um, and that's mostly because of like um, family lineage and ancestry. That's always been something really core and critical. It's like who I am and my identity. Um, but beyond that, I always try to see myself as like a creative and a storyteller who's just super interested in, again, thinking through these themes of like food and land um, and agriculture. Um, and also really important to know that I am a Scorpio. I feel like just for Scorpio <laughs> representation, um, that's always important to know, especially because I feel like there's some nasty like rumors and misconceptions about who we are. So always got to shout out the Scorpio um, hive out there. Wow. What a great introduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I am a Pisces. I don't know if I've ever said that on this on this podcast. I'm a Pisces. I'm also not very into astrology, but you know, for those that want to project onto me, that's. I, I have a friend, <laughs> Allison, that you know her, DeAndre, who always says mm -hmm. like when someone asks her her sign, she's always like, "I'm INTJ," you know. <laughs> <laughs> the Myers Briggs type. Yeah. I found I found the most sort of seeing personality archetypal thing to be the um enneagram mm -hmm. i felt very seen by the enneagram if you haven't taken it yet i would uh, yeah recommend. i haven't done that yet so i am taking notes i'm gonna look into that as soon as this conversation wraps yeah i felt i've never like you know the other ones i was like okay i can see like maybe where this might be me but the enneagram was like Spot on. It, it was like it was really spot on and it has a, it has scales of like this is you when you're at your best and you're feeling rejuvenated and this is you when you're like feeling drained and like you know the effects that you can have on other people and i was like damn this really does resonate with me <laughs> a lot um i also think it's uh relevant amiria that you and i both did a fellowship here in dc that focused on anti-hunger work um we were you know i was in like the 23rd class and amiria you were in the 24th class and that's actually how we like linked up. So this is all, all very, very kind of like interconnected around this sort of conversation around land and food and ecology that we're about to have. Yeah, 100%. And that was like such um, a fun experience for me, um, but also really illuminating in terms of just how we go about like talking about hunger and like the root causes of it. Um, so yeah, we'll love to dive into like that and like all the other juicy themes we identified. Yeah, it's this is such a big topic. It's hard to figure out where to start. Well, why don't you know? we just go into for people who don't know, what do we mean when we talk about black ecology? 
Yeah, definitely. So the idea of Black ecology definitely started in academia. Um, I'm literally forgetting the scholar who actually came up with that term, like school of thought, but it's been picked up by so many amazing um, recent scholars, including I'll give a shout out to JT Rowan, um, who I know is such a phenomenal and dear colleague um, doing work on this like school of thought. Um, but essentially, like there are two like primary sort of like tenets, I would say, with black ecology as a school of thought. So the first one being it's all about how do we bring the light sort of the different ways in which um, black folks specifically has sort of been devastated by different ecological like violences and harms and vulnerabilities um, and specifically bringing to light those realities in a way that's like through like a categorically black lens. So like, for example, I shout out JT Rowan and they have a really great, um, more like academic scholarly article about how um, there's like a whole archive of like um, jazz music from back in the day that like literally references like floods that impacted black communities or like other just like um, examples of like climate change and climate disaster and how like that's such an underutilized archive or really thinking through like what does a climate change world look like um but beyond that within the school of that there's also sort of this excavation of how have black people been resilient in the face of like ecological harm and vulnerability and like what are those like wells of wisdom that we can tap into because um, as we all know, like climate change isn't just touching like the global south or just black and brown communities, but we're really at a really dire and urgent um, point where it's impacting everyone. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at like images of like folks in Greece, like fleeing like an island because like of these huge devastating forest fires. And there is that recent IPCC climate report just being like, um, so bitches, we have until like 2030 or something. <laughs> and so like all of this is really bad and really dire. So, um, and that's always my favorite, um, tenet of black ecology sort of thinking through, um, there's still, um, a lot of space for doing things differently and imagining a different world. Um, and how can we look to like Afro diaspora communities to sort of glean, um, again, the different tools and instruments that we can use to get there. So is it more than, you know, talking about how climate change disproportionately, you know, affects people of color and black people? Like, is there some also like link between because I this is totally me spitballing, but to like this link to also like, you know, the history of slavery in America and like, you know, agrarian societies like, you know, really exploiting black people and things like that as well. 100 percent. I think if you dive deeper into that work. Um, I feel like so often when we think about climate change, especially like right now, there's a lot of discourse around the Anthropocene, this sort of idea that like we are in this situation and in a more climate change world because of like humanity. Um, it's because of like personal actions that we're taking every day that's contributing to like deforestation or, um, you know, the ocean levels rising and all of that. Um, but through the lens of black ecology, it's actually sort of making the case that like, it's not so much humanity that's like the destabilizing force within all of this. It's actually like, these broader systems and like containers that we put ourselves in, those being like white supremacy and like capitalism, um, patriarchy, like 
these mentalities and like systems are actually the things that are like causing all these things. Um, so black ecology is more so like, yeah, again, exposing exactly that, how because of, for example, looking at capitalism, that breeds a culture of extractivism, that breeds a culture of uncontrolled growth, um, that breeds a sort of mentality of I'm going to, you know, extract and pull out as much as I can from the earth because I want to make money and I want to make profit. Um, it's like those mentalities, those systems that are actually the main culprit for why we're here. Um, and I think that's really important to note because if it's white supremacy that's the destabilizing force, not humanity, that sort of reminds us that like there's nothing inherent to being a human that like made all this inevitable. Like we have so much like choice and autonomy and like we can be more imaginative in how like we're living. We can be more bold and rethinking how we relate to each other in the more than human world. Um, and like the choice to live under the architecture of like white supremacy, capitalism, yada, yada, yada. We can move to a whole new architecture and way, to, way of being um, that would allow for, you know, more thriving, more surviving for like us as humans in the more than human world too. Yeah. I think that we often, you know, do frame like the issue of climate change as like a humanistic humanity problem, but like it is definitely such a useful reframing to be like, I mean, humans or human-like things have lived for a long time and really we see like the spike in the world and global warming in like the last 200 years you know <laughs> and like we've been around for a lot longer than 200 years so i think yeah really hits really hits the nail on the head i <laughs> this reminds me of like the straw fiasco when everyone was like switching to, pl to pl our paper straws and so many millennials were just like reposting memes of like of like you know a giant fucking nuclear reactor giving off or whatever like giving off a lot of fumes and like someone with a starbucks cup in their in their paper straw being like oh yeah this is it <laughs> but uh, yeah of course of course it has to be more systemic of course yeah it it's always more systemic right and it's so funny you brought up straws i was my um, boyfriend sent me like a new uh new york times article about how like um I think there's been this huge push to like invest in like, you know, cotton totes because they're reusable. You can use them all the time. Um, but this New York Times piece was kind of like, they're not actually that sustainable. And to actually like make a difference, you have to use like one of your totes like an absurd amount of times, like 20,000 <laughs> times to actually have it be like a meaningful like purchase and like anti climate change investment. Um, so yeah, it's so, so interesting that. Um, we've been sold this idea that like capitalism is a solution to climate change instead of like actually flipping the script and being like, oh, but no, capitalism is actually like the thing like driving literally all of this. Um, but DeAndre, you mentioned sort of like humans have been around forever. And I think within that history, although short, there's been so many examples of like us living quote unquote in like right relationship with like the more than human world. And um, I think about the writer, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's known for having this quote around braiding sweetgrass. Yes, braiding sweetgrass. Like, if you're like a crunchy granola person like me, like you're probably familiar <laughs> and you know, if you're not familiar, definitely um, get into that work and her um, um, just like efforts. But through a colleague, I was reminded of one of her quotes recently, and she talks about how, you know, within the scope of like Earth geologic time, like, 
humans haven't been around that long and our true elders in a sense are like trees in the air and wind and like water and blah 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 and I was like oh that's so gorgeous and so meaningful and it has sort of like let me down this train of thought as sort of like remembering that like through all these like more than human kin being our elders like whole communities not just black and brown folks have like learned from those elders about how to actually in a sense like be a better earthling because they've perfected it and we're still pretty new it's like that whole idea of like what does it mean to like live on this planet in a way that's like sustainable and like allowing everyone to be resilient and to thrive so that um that relationship of like really leaning on these like you know other beings as like our elders as our teachers I think that feels like something that's really inherent to us because at the end of the day, like we are earthlings and like these are in a lot of ways are our kin. Like we are related and always in relationship with them. Um, so I think we've just gotten to a place where it's like we kind of been lost to that fact. Like we haven't forgotten it, but maybe we just been lost to it because again of these systems. So I think we're seeing like such a beautiful pivot back to like remembering like, oh yeah, these things are elders. What can they teach us about like how to survive and thrive, especially right now? That's so interesting that you bring that up because I, well, I, this is probably like the hundredth time I've mentioned this, this book on the show, but it reminds me of this section of Sapiens, but this book by you all know Harari where you know, he talks about how we're in this era of humanism right now, right? Where in the past we had eras in which we very much considered sort of like the stage, as as you might say, um, to be inclusive of like, you know, it, at the beginning it was all of these different like pagan traditions included like, you know, like the plants and the animals and like, you know, all of those different beings on that stage. And then it transitioned into a period of deism, right, where it was just human and God and all of those you know, other, you know, actors sort of fell away in terms of like the the voices that we consider to be relevant to us. And now we're in a period of humanism in which God is not even in the picture. It's just people just soliloquizing to ourselves. And I wonder when you say like, you know, OK, how can we reintroduce that notion? Obviously, he's talking about it in a very sort of religious and then secular transition. But, um, you know, how do we do that in a sort of this modern era? Because obviously that's going to look different from what it looked like hundreds of years ago, right? 100%. And you know, it's so interesting. I think I love that. And he's like, add that to my book list. I'm already obsessed. Um, <laughs> I think it's so interesting because I think, especially right now, we are like seeing so many pivots back to like indigenous ways of being and like black ancestral ways of being. And then like, I think it's like always so interesting when like a new like scientific study comes out confirming something that like some communities have like always known for like such a long time, <laughs> which, you know, for some people may feel kind of frustrating. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, like obviously like we shouldn't be like, you know, fracking, you know, the fucking continent just for the sake of like profit. Um, but I think it's kind of like makes me a little bit more optimistic because I think we are like having this huge shift and this huge return um especially right now right i feel like because of the pandemic and because like we've all had so much more time to be outside and you know for a lot of us like our only um interaction has come from like the plants that we're gardening or from like the tree that's like outside of like our patio or our deck or something and 
I have so many just like friends, like countless friends or just like colleagues, people I know who've been kind of like, now that like I've had to like renegotiate what it means like being community because like my sense community has like scaled back so much. I've kind of have like a new relationship with like my garden and the birds and the bees in my backyard or even like my pet and like my cat that I live with. Um, so I think there's been some things, especially right now amidst like this like apocalypse and apocalypse in terms of like looking the etymology of it, like an uncovering or like just sort of a reckoning or something. I think a lot of us are like really renegotiating like what does it mean when I say I'm in community? And I think for a lot more of us, we are sort of like entering this portal where like our community is no longer just like humans or people who look like me, but community really has broadened for a lot of people to be a lot more inclusive and a lot more um, abundant as well. So it's been super exciting to see, but also like why did it take so fucking long? Like, why did the pandemic have to come <laughs> for this, like, shift to, like, start happening on a more um, globalized scale? Yeah. I wonder, you know, because I, I also have felt this, you know, like, kind of new appreciation slash kinship with, like, the natural things around me. I'm also, like you and Maria, are from the South. So, like, being in dense urban areas is not where I kind of feel at home. It's, you know, always been... A little bit of a fish out of water feel for me but what i was going to say was that i wonder how we like can translate this kind of new community like how that can translate to you know change for the better can i can i piggyback on that too um there's a you know i have this neighbor who's really really you know into sustainability and you know one of the things that he's been doing this summer is growing this garden um just like you know you talk about your garden and you know, he sees this as like this big radical act, right? And I'm curious, especially from a sort of community standpoint, um, how things like growing plants, right, in your mind are kind of a, a key to get into that community um, like mindset and allow us to broaden our sort of spheres of influence in that way. Yeah. Ooh, there's so many juicy things there, but um I'll kind of like piggyback with like the gardening piece and like what does that like sort of like teach us like how is like the garden in a sense like a place of like pedagogy and how is it like instructive even um and I think like I'll just talk about me and my experience so like I started gardening this season I'm actually preparing for like fall and like winter cool weather season uh gardening um so I just got like some plugs for like lettuce and like chard and like other leafy greens um and um so I live in a condo and I'm gardening on my deck so like everything's like super contained and I have what's called like a garden tower it's like this self-sustaining like gardening system there's like little um like portions on the side for like actually growing things and then on the center there's a tube uh for vermicomposting and for those who don't know vermicomposting is basically composting with like living organisms in this case I'm using 500 really cute um, or, uh, worms called red wigglers. So um, I feed them just like kitchen scraps and like other like browns they're called. So like hay or cardboard. Um, and they eat that and basically produce like castings or basically worm poop that I use to like compost and fertilize everything that I'm um, growing at the moment. Um, and I explain all that because like it's been so amazing just like holding and bearing witness to such a self-sustaining ecosystem 
and having a very real sense of, oh, everything in this ecosystem has like a role to play. All these things are in community and there's a very real sense of everyone is doing its job because it understands that like, if I do my job, I will benefit, I will survive. Me being in a relationship with these other things, like me living community communally um, is better, not only for my survival, but all of us collectively. And I think that's been so instructive uh, for me because it's kind of like a nice reminder that like, oh, we all live in an ecosystem. It's really big. It's global. Um, but like <laughs> through the pedagogy of the garden, again, it's like, oh, now I have a more visceral understanding of the fact that like my well-being is intimately tied to the well-being of those around me. Um, and I always believe in this idea that like um, change is very um it's sort of like these idea of like a constituent circle. It's like, if I can make change on like a very like individuated myself atomic level, um, that's going to breed out and have repercussions um, for like, you know, my household and like me and my boyfriend, me and my friend group, then maybe like, you know, the DC community and so on and so forth. Um, so like, honestly, I believe that like, if more people garden or like found more ways to really understand like our place in sort of this broader ecosystem, I think there would be like this really radical shift where it's sort of like, oh, I'm in an ecosystem too. How can I show up in a way that really embodies that, that really reveres and honors that? Um, so, you know, we can definitely sort of romanticize gardening, um, but I think there is something really instructive. And I think that goes back to this idea of like, the more than human world being our true elders and they are literally teaching us every single day like how to show up for each other um we're not really looking for like new tools new instruments all we have to do is like honestly practice like a sense of biomimicry right just like looking to nature looking to the more than human world seeing what's happening and then like adopting that um in our own day-to-days and in like on the and being in community with ecosystems thing it brings me to i think what was the forward of braiding sweetgrass which is robin kimmerer's book um where she talks about how they're to kind of like prove this point of like humans being in community with an ecosystem and being part of an ecosystem she talks about uh, a plant called sweetgrass which was really important to a lot of native people for a very for a variety of different reasons and how you know, the plant grows best and more prosperous when it's being handled by humans and how, um, you know, without humans propagating this plant, it wouldn't be, you know, the giant sort of really important crop that it was. And, and it had benefits for its also surrounding ecosystems, like more than humans. And yeah, just hammering home this point of, you know, we in our very, very, very kind of like modernized dissociated from nature society don't think of ourselves as part of a greater cycle of nature but you know there we very much are yeah and i think that's like so important to call out because i think if you ask like people who are again in the uh, crunchy just like earthy environmental hive like even like the word nature creates like a really weird um you know non-inherent binary between like nature and then like there's what humans are doing over here and it's like 
I think it's so important to like name and acknowledge that like nature itself is like its own machination. It's its own um what's we're looking for, just like invention, right? That I think has served really specific purposes. Um, you know, I think it served purposes when it comes to like white supremacy, creating like a sense of like um control you know when i think about manifest destiny like it was really important to have the invention in nature to sort of be like well god told us we can go out and conquer nature and the invention of nature is really important for white supremacy in the sense of you know well black people brown people they're uncivilized they're primitive which is another way of saying they're of nature and relating to it in a really different way so if god said we have you know a certain ownership and dominion over nature that includes the niggas too and black and brown folks and all of that um so i think it's really important to call that out and to really name it and i think when we acknowledge that right it really does destabilize like you know at the same time like oh humanness is like its own invention as well and like who has had access to that and how has that invention what was that meant to do like what's the actual efficacy of like the human, like capital T, capital H. Um, and I think for a lot of us, that can be kind of like scary. We've really been bought into this idea that like, I'm a human, I'm like this individuated individual thing that's separate from nature, separate from like everyone else. Um, which again, like thinking about functionality that serves capitalism, which is really run by this idea that like, whatever you do as far as like your income where you're at within those strata that's all on you um so i always think about how if we destabilize like the human that means we have to like destabilize literally everything else and come back to this inherent fact that like all of this is fluid, all of this is super connected, all of this is inherently in community. I will never forget, like, for example, one of my favorite professors from undergrad was kind of like, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like, in a really figurative, poetic way, like, we are connected with the more than human world, but also, like, in a really, like, kind of weird, scientific, literal way, like, that's also true. Like, when you get down to, like, our molecular sort of, like, structure, like, we aren't like, you know, these like discrete entities, right? Like we're kind of just like kind of buzzing molecules bumping into each other. So when I'm running my hands underwater, like there is like a literal blurring of like the molecules that make up the water and the molecules that make up me, even though we are like, you know, majority water as well. So um, I think we've been, again, just wrapping it up, been bought into like this invention of, all these things are so discreet and those inventions have served really specific functions when it comes to like upholding all these systems. Um, so I think ultimately the work for all of us is to like destabilize the shit out of all of that. Um, so we can come back to the inherent fact that like this is all super fluid and all super intertwined. That's such an interesting concept to think about how like I never quite drew the connection that explicitly of like if we think of ourselves as being separate and exceptionalist, then we can get away with things like destroying the planet because then it feels as like it doesn't have any impact on us. Right. Like we can, you know, feel as if we're divorced from our food systems and, you know, our systems of, that make our clothes and things like that. And, you know, we don't see it. So, you know, it's so easy to kind of live under that illusion. 100%. And I think it's like so important to call out, right? Because it's like, 
what we do to the land is gonna be done to us and I don't think we've really been feeling that sort of like cyclical sort of like blowback effect until like now recently um but I've been thinking about that so much in terms of like rest um because like with like work and working under a pandemic I really been trying to renegotiate my relationship to like rest and really finding ways to like have more time for myself and ripper chat to my energy and learning like refusal and like saying no and I like I was doing some thinking I was like how did we get to the point where like not resting was like considered okay um but then I thought about how like again like we've been practicing not allowing rest with like the more world and of course it was going to come back um to us because again all of this is so connected and I was thinking about how like we pull and extract from natural world and don't allow that setting that space its own like rest um and like in agriculture there's a term called fallowness where like a lot of farmers will allow like a plot of land to like sit and rest like it can rejuvenate and nutrients can come back and all of that and we've completely divorced ourselves in a land context from that sort of idea um and that brings to mind someone like George Washington Carver who sort of like known as being like the peanut guy and that's all he's sort of like <laughs> done um but there's such an interesting like context around his work um around the time he was alive you know cotton's king and blah 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 and he had a really astute understanding that like because of like decades of enslavement decades of like growing cotton like cotton is like really um intense as far as like impact on the land and he was like oh because of all this um cotton growing we've like stripped so much uh so many nutrients from the land in the south and in order to revitalize that i want to find a way to introduce and commercialize a new crop that will help revitalize it so that we can actually have this land for like more time and generations to come and so lo and behold he was like oh peanuts could like literally be that thing um so a lot of his work and a lot of his study was really built around how do we um allow the land to rest and how do we introduce this new crop and create a market for it that's actually going to be so much better for like the land but through different machinations races political whatever um obviously like i wouldn't say we're in a country like peanuts or like just one of our big things that we're growing it makes it makes a lot of sense than that george washington carver's story was whitewashed into just being the peanut guy yeah and like peanut butter right 100 percent. when like it turns out that we learned that a lot of these old especially like black inventors and progressives really had a very radical agenda <laughs> <laughs> um one that's much more radical than whatever might have been taught to us in schools yeah um, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, like thinking, like talking about how, you know, human beings should be existing as in an ecosystem or whatever has really kind of like got me thinking about how ridiculous it is that we are even like thinking about colonizing other planets. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, I mean, and I think thinking might be a strong term, you know, but the fact that it's even like it's it's just another way to show like how kind of divorced we are from this concept of you know like this in this in this binary of like nature and not nature right like we don't even think ourselves 
as being enough of a part of this world to like think that we need to fix it before we leave something else you know yeah and i think that concept is always so interesting to me because i'm like okay let's say like we figured out we're colonizing mars or the moon or wherever the fuck like what does that actually mean if we're still gonna mm-hmm. like harbor like these same mentalities these same systems and like we're just gonna literally um replicate them and i feel like especially within the midst of like more discourse around like abolition there's been a lot of conversation around what does it mean to like not only like defund the police you know externally in real life but also like how do you get rid of like the cop in your head and i think that's like a piece that like a lot of us are still not are still missing like how do we not only like let go of like these like infrastructural things but then also like how do we you know decolonize ourselves and how do we reorient like our own internal like calculus in terms of like how we show up what we think is right or not right how we think we're supposed to relate to each other um so that whole idea of like um branching out and the pursuit of like a more stable place to, like live and have humanity prosper i'm like that's never gonna happen unless we do like some really like molecular like restructuring of like how we're actually relating to each other and it kind of reminds me of like this like short story I read like ages ago in like a science fiction anthology and it's a really wild short story written by a white man but in this short story in the future black people has been uh have been sent to like mars and like the ultimate like segregation sort of like schematic so white people on earth chilling and black people are just like on mars because they're sent there and like one huge rocket whatever i don't know the context for the short story um <laughs> but in this short story um a pair of white astronauts come to earth uh mars where the black people are and they're kind of like hey can we kick it with you guys because like we had a nuclear war and like wiped out everything um and in this short story all the black people are like you know we're gonna like treat them how they treated us so they like in ads like a weird um segregation is like policy and like mistreat like these white astronauts and it's like really weird like a reverse literal reverse racism scenario in this world um but it was just like really interesting because i was like wow like this like white writer really thought that if black people were sent to mars that like we would just like reinstitute the same schematics that like we were subjected to um and i think that has less to do with like white people but like white supremacy like there's just this overwhelming sense of like i just want to like replicate these things have them keep going have them keep going um and in my head i was like in a more realistic version of this like that would never happen like i feel like so many communities especially marginalized ones like we're trying to like fight for these like completely other different schematics um especially ones that like are more inherent to us but that have been stripped away or considered you know villainous and like brutish and uncivilized um so yeah 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 and that's such a like that kind of hypothetical scenario of like oh like what if black people like had power and what if women had power and like you know all of these types of hypotheticals often i think are so just impossible like for us to think about in this way because you know we are like especially when we look at the people who have come to have power in our current system like 
there's I feel like a lot of really shitty like female CEOs like Elizabeth Holmes and Mickey Agrawal that like people will point to and be like, oh, see, like women are just as terrible. But all of these women are coming up in these like systems that are inherently patriarchal. And so like they cannot succeed unless they are being put, you know, if they're being unless they're being just as shitty and it becomes a race to the bottom. But if we did truly have a systemic, you know, level shift where there was no path dependence on like, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy. I think it's truly like incredibly difficult for us to imagine what that world could actually look like. 100%. And I think that's kind of scary that like for a lot of us, we can't like imagine sort of like what's on the horizon or like um, have, you know, the ability to like sit and reflect and be like, if I close my eyes, like if I get touch and feel this world, like I feel like a lot of us wouldn't be able um, to do that. I think we're at the point where we're so deep in like our current world. Um, and I think that's why like, it's so critical to have like conversations like this or to just like really sit and imagine, like, let me flex that imaginative muscle and like really think through like what else could be, because that is truly the thing that is like stopping us from like being where we could be. I think a huge part of it is that ability to like imagine more um, so I almost feel like, you know, we talk about like racial justice and like all these other things, but I'm almost kind of like, I'm just like talking out loud, theorizing out loud. I'm like, I almost feel like we need like, um, an imagination justice movement to happen. I think a few of us have been like given that privilege and that spaciousness, to, like imagine. And like, I'm mostly thinking about like a lot of white men have been in this space, like you'd be like. I'm imagining that like I can fucking colonize Mars and they've been given the space and the resources and the systemic power to do that. But I think so many other, uh, so many of us, like, you know, black folks, queer folks, like, because we've been like under these systems for so long, I think like there's been a little bit of an imbalance in terms of how we've been given that space to be like, what does my circumstance look like outside of like this one um, current reality that we're in? Yeah. And I, I, this is something that I have like been in various workplaces and like, you know, organizations that I volunteer with um, because there's so many groups that are sort of going through this racial reckoning right now. We've been I've been reading that. Um, I don't know if either of you have read it, but there's this like paper like Okun's like, you know, 10 elements of white supremacy culture, you know, that are in like the workplace. And, you know, they include yeah, things like. That you know, a sense of urgency or right to comfort or, you know, things like that. I, I th so I had a training at that uh, in that at Fannie Mae that was a pretty radical training for us to go through because I was not expecting a place like Fannie Mae to necessarily do a training like that. Um, but and people did struggle with it a lot because I do think there's this like level of imagination that you have to have where you're like, wait a second, like what? what would a workplace even look like if we didn't have a sense of urgency or like didn't have deadlines or we didn't have like, you know, this notion that we were designing for like the average user or something like that. Right. And it's so hard for, it's really difficult to grapple with. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're just generally not taught to like think in ways that are that revolutionary. Right. Like that really, really overthrow everything that we could even like know or have known. And even like, you know, DeAndre, with our, you know, I feel like we talk a lot about polyamory and stuff like that. Like now that I'm in this sort of brain space, I'm like, oh, there's so many ways in which monogamy is also just totally 
white supremacist and colonial, right? Oh man, monogamy like, is like very white supremacist, like, especially especially in the, the way that we think of uh, that uh, the typical right, American thinks right about of it, this like proprietarian, sure. you know, like owning women, like that's totally capitalist, and like <laughs> you know, yeah, like, like you can tell people like who to have sex with. Yeah, the concept yeah. of monogamy and marriage comes from like capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Like it's like you know, like it's a contract, it's a business, it's a whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's totally one of those things that like once you start looking at any of like the systems level social constructs that we have, you're like, "Oh my god." Cuz like we had an episode on our podcast with this woman Yolanda who talked about decolonizing parenting. And then when she started going through all of the ways in which our parenting is super colonial, you're just like, "Oh, this is so obvious." Right. But it's not something that you necessarily think to associate with colonialism. Right. Yeah. And like you mentioned like parenting and like I'm just thinking about like my own family and how like, you know, I feel like this is like a common experience for like many of us. I feel like especially like POC women, queer folks, I feel like there are so many of us who are kind of like, you know what? I've seen the trauma and things that like you have gone through. I'm going to like forge a new path and like try something different and like imagine something different. I'm going to like live outside the U.S. or instead of becoming a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, all those at once, I'm going to be, you know, like an artist or a creative. And I feel like so often there's sort of like that reflex of like not being able to like imagine more where like our parents will be like, I don't think you should do that or that's not a great idea or you shouldn't behave that way. And I feel like so often that's coming out of like the a response to like, I have had my own really traumatizing experiences like anti-blackness or misogyny or misogynoir that have really taught me that like I can imagine my life in these ways. Um, And it feels like really liberating that like so many millennials and especially Gen Zers just feel sort of like, actually, I'm going to take that freedom, snatch it if I have to, um, and like imagine more and imagine better for myself. Um, imagine better and more for all of us, honestly. This idea of like imagination, it's such a powerful tool and it's been suppressed in so many ways. Um, and it's honestly just kind of this question of how do we reclaim that? Like, how do we be more imaginative of like, you know, what is life outside of like, a, you know, normal, normative marriage? What is life outside of, you know, these colonial ways of parenting? What is life outside of like, these really extractive relationships with like mountains and rivers and trees. And like, if we can do that work, there's like so much abundance on the other side of it. Yeah. I wanted, I think this is kind of relevant to what we're talking about. Um, I wanted to talk about a concept that you brought up Emilio in your email about like the complexities around writing land wrongs and how, and how, difficult that can be to figure out and you link to this like really interesting article about um you know the usda was set to give socially like historically socially disadvantaged farmers about um like four billion dollars in grants to you know i think as a way to you know start making up for all the bullshit that america has done to (laughs) to um to farmers of color and it was actually blocked by a judge because a, a group of 12 white farmers got together and sued and said that it would do them irreparable harm um so i wanted to just like yeah pick your brain about you know maybe not specifically as much about that situation but about you know what does writing you know writing past wrongs look like obviously it seems like something that looks like a lot like reparations as part of that but are there other ways yeah and i wanted to 
talk to you about that yeah i mean like when we dig into like land that's like super complicated and like i'm by no means like an expert and i just want to shout out so many groups who are doing that work i'm thinking of friends like rochelle faithful um who at one point was like a land like property like lawyer um also thinking about folks like um a new colleague new peer jordan alexander williams who's like a land store out in kingston new york um, and really thinking about these in like really smart, just like really critical ways. But I think ultimately, like first and foremost, if we're thinking about like how do we acknowledge this uh, history of like nasty relationships with like land, ultimately it comes for me back to this idea of like giving the land back. Um, because ultimately <laughs> it boils down to the point that like this land isn't ours. Like this land belongs to so many indigenous groups and um that gets tricky for black folks because like there's a lot of discourse around like what does indigeneity look like for black americans because you know for folks um living here in the u.s who are black who have like ancestry that kind of goes back to like enslavement it's kind of like we're coerced and like kind of forced to be here we're not i mean we're not from here literally not from here but so like what is like indigeneity mean to us and then in that what does like access like land look like for us um especially given this history of you know like post-reconstruction like there were a shit ton of black farmers and like black folks owned so much land especially land that at the time wasn't considered um like valuable that wasn't considered um uh, it wasn't um, seen as like a feasible place to, like cultivate and bring life or vitality um, or any of those things. Um, but through just like a long history of like racism, white supremacy, capitalism, you know, I've literally read stories of like, you know, white people banding together and like literally just like writing people off of their land and being like, I'm going to take it. This isn't like a legal acquisition of like, your property but i know as like a white community and white group we can do this and terrorize you and get away with that um when we think about like that entire history of like land being taken from us um i'm speaking about black people like it's always kind of tricky it's kind of like where do we sit within like this idea of like justice within this idea of like reparations um, but yeah, I think for me, ultimately, it comes to giving land back and finding ways to co-steward even, you know, and thinking about folks like um, Leah Pinneman, who's like really big in like the black farming scene and how she has like a farm, but like that's like co-stewarded in like, collaboration with like other groups, including like indigenous communities, I believe. Um, so like, what are like those different machinations, different like ways, again, relating to each other in which we can come back to a sense of like justice, reparations, all of that. Um, especially like in this like time where land is becoming like, you know, the site of like almost like this new gold rush. There are like a million articles about like folks like Bill Gates and other people like grabbing up like huge plots of land, um, which is concerning for a number of different reasons, you know. Um, when we think about just like a climate change world, when we think about these huge questions around how are we going to grow food in a really sustainable way? And do we have enough like viable farmland? Because like there are certain practices that are like actively depleting like um, viable arable land. 
um that's really problematic to think that like a bunch of like millionaires and billionaires have like access like all this rich fertile whatever have you land um but yeah hashtag get the land back (laughs) yeah i mean i think this is like also connecting back to the conversation we just had around like being creative in the way that we think and specifically being creative and thinking about how we solve these issues right like there isn't really a a national discourse like that's in depth about how to like right land wrongs at least in a political sphere and you know maybe if there was that we could we could feel we could come to something at least begin to come to something that feels like it makes sense 100 percent. yeah but i think ultimately go back to the city of like imagination like there's a huge need to like even rethink like what does property look like what does ownership look like um so it's like there are like these even more just like deeply entrenched barriers i think we really have to reconcile with um you know as someone who quote unquote owns a condo like i'm like reconciling with that and sort of like thinking through like (laughs) what does that mean because it is nice thinking that like oh i own and have access to like this like little space like plot of land that like i can call my own and that like i can like rest in and like rejuvenate in and work and um, especially just given this context, you know, of millennials being sold this dream, like you want to own a home, you know, for generations, especially for like wealth acquisition. Um, so it gets tricky even with that. Cause it's kind of like, this feels like a pathway. It's like leaving something behind for like future kids maybe and like building wealth, um, which feels like important in the context of like um, the racial wealth gap and like racialized wealth disparities, things like that. Um, but again, getting back to like the basics, it's like, what does it mean that like I'm owning a piece of land? What does it mean that like I'm actively a part of like gentrifying like a DC neighborhood and like potentially displacing like other folks who have been here generationally um, and who have like maybe a more authentic claim to like be in this space than I do? But now I can claim it because, you know, I had disposable income and like money to like do that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so, so tricky and so, so intricate. Um, but I think like ultimately it really does boil down to us renegotiating like these very basic ideas of, you know, what does it mean to be a property owner? What does it mean to like own something, especially land? Um, what does it mean to like own something that like is inherently stolen? Yeah. So if you could have, you know, your vision of that kind of society or community that you'd want to live in, even if it was like on a on a small scale, um, do you and you don't have to have like everything figured out, but do you have any particular, you know, details of what you think that would look like? Yeah, um, I think like something I've been so interested in, especially amid a pandemic, post pandemic is like this idea of like mutual aid and like how mutual aid is really predicated on like, again, renegotiating our relationships and making them like a lot more intimate, a lot more localized. And I think it's been like so beautiful seeing people be like, you know what, in my community, you know, within like the five block radius that I live in, I know that folks need food. So I'm going to open up a community fridge or maybe provide drop-offs and like provide like produce for like my garden so like other people can like be fed and like, be food and uh, secure in like some sense of like whatever that phrase means or you know i'm going to start like a you know 
Venmo account and like people can request money from me and I'm going to send them money to pay for like their bills and electricity and yada yada, things like that. Um, so I think it, I've been so deeply inspired by this idea of like local groups of people coming together and like meeting their needs in a really specialized, specific kind of way. Um, so I think like in my like perfect like world, um, I would love to see like more of that sort of like this disinvestment from like these larger like systems and complexes and relying on them to meet our needs, but instead being like, how can I rely like on my local community to sort of like hash out those needs amongst ourselves and like really lessening that dependence on like, again, these like larger systems or something um, like what it means, like divest a little bit from like the medical industrial complex and be like, you know what? I'm feeling a little under the weather. I'm going to go to like the herbalist down my street and like get a tincture concoction that's going to like help me feel better. Or, you know, I'm going to divest from like, you know, the trickiness that comes from like corporations that own like grocery stores. And like, I'm going to learn to like forage with other people so that like we can sustain ourselves or have um, co-owned like gardens or something. Um, and I always love looking at history and seeing like, where has this happened before? I'm sure it has happened before. Um, and I think about folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who was amazing black woman, really known for being like this hardcore, staunch, like amazing voting rights advocate. Um, but there's a portion of her life later in her life um, where she basically like helped to found like this self-sustaining um, all black community. And like, all the tenets of that community were very much based on this idea of like mutual aids. So, like for example, um, she had a very literal like piggy bank where she had fundraising and was able to like purchase like pigs and like sows and like she would give them to like families and like they would raise these pigs and like some of the pigs would be raised to like continue having more pigs and some of the pigs were like given away and like killed for like just like food and like nutrition and that's like such an interesting like concept for me like again building like these self-sustaining ecosystems and like relationships like land um so yeah i think i draw like a lot of like inspiration from like that idea yeah and it's also hard to think on that level because often when i think of mutual aid in this like larger context of like how are we changing the system i feel often as if mutual aid is not like the solution because it's like it feels like a very band-aid solution as opposed to like a systemic level solution and when we talk about like solutions to capitalism like so many times people bring up like oh well we just need to tax billionaires right but like that's only feasible on like the most you know large scale like you know federal government level right for that to yeah. be able to benefit everybody and so i really wonder you know how can we get to a point where you know like we are balancing what is the benefit of you know having things done locally versus what can be done on a large scale because even though i think a lot of leftists are very pro you know like let's do things like tax billionaires and whatnot we also don't necessarily have a lot of faith that the government will follow through on the things that we want them to do with that money as well. Right. Because we know that, like, you know, they fund the military and the police with that money instead of like actually helping people a lot of the time. Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. And like, I think there has to be that balance. Right. Because, again, and, like it's so complex, Um, like even like using like food, for example, like in my ideal world, like I would love it if like everyone garden and like that was her way of like actually sustaining themselves. Um. 
but ultimately like in the world that we live in, like how we produce food, how we source it, um, is sort of done like on this really complex globalized scale where that's not gonna be the one and done way for people to like feed themselves. Um, and like there are these yeah. other intricacies in terms of like, okay, if we want everyone to like garden or like to forage, do people have the time to do that? Do people have the resources to do that? Do people have like the access to land to do that? Going back to like the complexities around like land. Um, I know like I just keep bringing up foraging. There are like weird like foraging laws in like different states and like um, in certain communities, like black folks who are foraging have been like um, more harassed than like non-black folks who are foraging. So it's like, that's never going to be the 100% like one and done um, solution. Um, but I am always curious to know like how like those more localized efforts can like help get us to like that horizon again. But ultimately like it is going to take like, these huge like structural changes, um, which are going to be like slow, painstakingly slow um, and potentially may never get here. Cause like even I'll admit, I'm just kind of like, I'm not 100% sure. Like, I know what the end of capitalism, like, even looks like and how we would even get there. Um, yeah, it's all messy. Yeah, I've said on the show before that it is, like, looking into that kind of future is, like, building a plane while it's flying, right? Like, we, you know, we would have to figure it out as we go and we need a policy landscape that is nimble enough for us to like to allow us to do that 100 um yeah but yeah i think things like mutual aid like that is like that has to be part of a larger a larger solution but definitely i feel like plays a large part yeah definitely but i think for me what gives me like some like ounce of faith is that like all of this is like so deeply fake and man-made and um not you know not immutable um, all these things are like of our own hand and like of our own doing. So um, I'm not sure like what the pathway is to like undo these things, but it really does give me inspiration and faith to know that like these things can be brought down and these things can be undone. Mario, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally sat down and got to do this. Yes, this was such a great conversation. So thank you to you both. For sure. Um, my ending question for everyone is now people are vaxxed. We're vaxxed and ready to hit the world, you know, until Delta shuts us down again. Have you done anything that was super stoked that you were super happy to get out and do? Or is there anything that you're really excited to do? Ooh, I think I am at heart a basic gay so i love doing a brunch and like rosé situation um which i got to do recently with a couple of friends that was exciting um i have missed day drinking so much and being lightly tipsy <laughs> in the streets of dc so it's been amazing getting to do that a little bit more often as of late yeah i think i've done a brunch stitch like twice and both have been very rejuvenating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, well, this is your time. Uh, plug whatever you want to plug. Yeah, um, for anyone listening, y'all can like follow me on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Plantasia underscore Barino. Um, that is definitely a Fantasia Barino pun. <laughs> um, a few people catch it, but just putting it out there so you will. Yes. Um, yeah. And I also host another podcast, as DeAndre mentioned, called uh, Lone Listen, 
um, under the loam sort of um, independent publication um, in print. Um, yeah, and that's just a podcast that I sort of um, really delineate, uh, delineate as being um, a place just for talking with like artists and entrepreneurs, et cetera, um, about how we can create the loamy soil from which new worlds can bloom. And this season, we've been tackling this theme of like birth. So yeah, check us out. Amazing. That's a good tagline. <laughs> like how you, you know, loaming. Yeah, that, that really good tagline. Um, and as always, you can find us at I'm the villain pod. That's our Twitter. It's our Gmail and that's our Instagram. Otherwise, bye everyone.